Monsieur Hoffman, I'm the man you're looking for. Café des Beaux-Arts in Nîmes. I saw you, but you weren't alone, so I didn't dare bother you. Is she de dead? Come with me to France, and you'll know everything. Even how she died? I offer you this unique chance. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 20 this time and it is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has chosen. I've chosen The Vanishing from 1988, which is a Dutch and French language film directed by George Slyzer, and he also co-wrote the script. And it stars Bernard-Pierre Donadieu, Jean Bervotes, and Johanna Terstiga. And this is all apologies for possibly butchering everyone's name in advance. Sorry, everyone. I'm just going to refer to character names from I here I think on. that is an excellent idea. So to follow that, it's the story of Rex and Saskia, and they are on holiday in France. And Saskia disappears from a busy service station, and that's just the beginning. The first frame of the film, or the first few frames of the film at least, before it transfers to our couple traveling, begins with... A shot of nature, this idyllic scene where you have a stick insect walking along a branch or a shoot from a plant. And that is bookended on the opposite end of all this horror one hour and 40 odd minutes later with an almost identical scene of a mantis crawling through a lawn, telling us not so subtly, by that point we realize, in the beginning you have this creature, this stick insect, that looks like something else that is able to pass camouflaged, concealed, undetected, much the way a sociopath appears to everyone else to be a normal functioning human being. And by the time we get to the end of the film, we have this nice bookend where instead of a stick insect, we now have a praying mantis. And so now we have a predator out in the open. And so we transition from our bit of foreshadowing directly to our couple, Rex and Saskia. And they are having what I assume to be kind of those common arguments. I know that how many times have you and I argued in a car about do we have enough gas or not? Yeah, these things are something I assume that everyone who has been cooped up in a car with someone for long stretches of time can probably relate to. It's probably a pretty universal condition to have been driving for a long time. Nerves are a little frayed. One person thinks this is the way to do it. The other one distinctly does not think so. It sets up this whole interesting power dynamic between them for that first 10-15 minutes that I didn't remember very well from the first time, but that made me read this movie in an entirely different way than I remember doing 20-plus years ago the first time I saw it. Oh, really? Because I'll have something to say about that in a moment. My own personal experience with watching it through the lens of 20 years later as well. So what was different for you this time? I focused a lot more on Rex and his lack of a lot of things, lack of character, lack of my lack of sympathy for him in this case. We'll get more into that later as we get down the road some. It obviously occurred to you right away. Something sort of set you off with that. Yes, something did. Watching their entire interaction, but there was one thing in particular that we're coming up on shortly. 
they're arguing, they are jibing with each other, they are playing the animal game, which put a smile on my face because that was my go-to game when I was little because I can't read in cars. So my parents always had to come up with some endless series of games to distract me so they wouldn't have to pull over so I could throw up, which mostly (laughs) happened a lot. But anyway, they're playing games, they're chatting, they're talking about where they're going to, this Bois Vieux. She has this house, evidently, that they're traveling to. In the meantime, they do actually run out of gas, kind of in the middle of nowhere because they've decided to see more of the local color, as it were, so they get off the main highway. Not so much in the middle of nowhere as very specifically in the middle of something in a tunnel. You are right. They are entombed almost, foreshadowing, in this tunnel that is a very dangerous, precarious situation to be in because of cars speeding in and out in either direction, there being no warning lights, there being no way to protect themselves in case someone takes a corner too quickly and doesn't realize they're there because a car is not supposed to be stationary in that lane. And Saskia has already talked about this recurring dream that she has that is her in this golden egg floating through space. And it's her representation of extreme loneliness and fear and terror. And she's getting extremely agitated being in this tunnel. And they're not working together to find a solution, really. She's trying to locate a flashlight. He's thinking, I've got to get out of here and go for gas. And they're screaming at each other at this point. I think Saskia more in terror, and she's crying. Before we get too far ahead of that, there are a number of things about the golden egg dream that I think are really significant. Obviously, because it was the title of the novella that this was taken from, so we cannot just brush past it and not pay any attention to it. And it has great significance to her. Mm -hmm. One, it's the second image of being entombed or encased in a thing that we encounter in that sequence. But even more telling than that, in terms of the dynamic of their relationship, he is the one that relates it to the audience first. She mentions it, and then he tells the story rather than her. He fleshes out what it is, and then she adds to it. There's this whole element of control and manipulation that makes him extremely unappealing to me this time around that I maybe didn't notice as distinctly the first time. And this is the first instance of it when he is the one that relates her dream to the audience rather than her. And it didn't occur to me so much to think of him really at all. He is he is more of a blank to me. He's not given a particularly strong personality, in my opinion, one way or the other. This is all about events occurring to him that he sort of swept along with, as opposed to, oh, uh, I can say five character traits about him. I don't have that as much. The search becomes him rather than he stamping his personality onto everything. I've got a lot to say about Rex. Okay. All right. We'll get to it. Okay. But this is the first significant time that a thing he did made me sit back and look at him a different way this time. And I think it's interesting when she is then talking about the dream. Yes, she expands more depth. She says, this time it was a bit different. There were actually two eggs. And I think that, tell me if you agree with me on this. It seems like Rex took that to mean that he was the other egg. Mm-hmm. So they were together in space. And I think he that he harkens back to that towards the end of the film. I actually took that to be this other person. When she was telling the dream this time, 
And now, having seen the movie, I took it to be the man that comes in later. This other force. So you don't see it as the two of them entombed in separate things that are exactly identical? I don't. Spoiler (laughs) alert. I didn't when I watched it. I kept thinking about Raymond, who we will meet in a bit. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're telling me I'm a big dummy? No. I missed it all. There are a number of ways to read it. That is just the way I took it. That their fate is now going to be similar, if not identical, and they will end up trapped in the same object. It's very literal reading. I don't know. I haven't read the novella, so I don't know if there's more I to haven't either. that idea. But I think it's a pretty straightforward image. To me, it seems like, at least in retrospect. Disagree. I think I'm right. <laughs> if it is Raymond, why does he appear in the same form as her? What is it, do you feel like, that connects the two of them? That the symbology would be such that they are identical figures. He has now stamped himself into her story. But not as some malevolent outside force. It could have been represented any number of ways. So why the egg? I don't know. I think he's tied their fate together now. Or he's about to. And he's essentially removed Rex from the story. So it's now the two of them in space. And he doesn't know three years later what will happen and i'm sorry i'm I'm talking about things that we will absolutely get to so well it mirrors the structure of the film because we have all these clever little slivers of time past tense present tense the past is always imprinting on the present as we move forward in the film so make the podcast that way too okay Mm. i see what you're saying i guess it it just occurred to me that time when she first said there was this second egg and i thought immediately raymond hmm But it's been so long, you can't recall what you thought the first time. No, no. I can recall things that I, that occurred to me the first time I I saw it, which I now realize I was maybe remembering a little bit incorrectly, actually. Yeah, I think I was too. It's been two plus decades. And I'll mention one of those specific instances here in a moment when we get to the, the section. Okay. Well, so they're arguing. They're in the tunnel. She tells about the expanded version of the dream. At this point, they get out of the car like you were describing. She's looking for a flashlight. He grabs the gas can, and he essentially abandons her, leaves her in the tunnel. She's very afraid. She keeps calling for him, calling for him. He won't respond, doesn't turn back, doesn't even look back. He's too angry. He just keeps walking. I think there's also a little bit of a smile in his face. I think he's thinking he's really teaching her a lesson. That's what occurred to me. Yeah, I don't doubt it. He's kind of a jerk. I have. Can you tell I have a bias against yes, this character? Definitely. It gets worse. It okay. gets way worse. Oh, okay. All right. So he retrieves the gasoline, comes back to find the car empty. The first time that she disappears, essentially. He fills the car up, proceeds to the end of the tunnel where, in the haze of the bright light that is approaching, the literal light at the end of the tunnel, there she is. She's been waiting outside in the light with the flashlight. It, really the only safe place for her to be. Now, this is what I had remembered incorrectly. Okay. I realized. Unless I saw some uh, other cut of the film that never, no one else ever saw. Are which... you conflating it with the 1993 remake? Uh, no, I okay. have not seen that. So this is what I remembered. I remember them having a terrible argument and... He essentially putting her out of the car 
and making her walk alone overnight where he then picks her up and she's fine. And I remember so distinctly, this is very weird, breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, no, that wasn't the thing that's going to happen because I knew something was going to happen. Mm -hmm. No, she's fine. And it was this big dodge. But so I, I made it into something so much worse than it was. There, it, And we see that when he's gone to go get the gas and come back, not a lot of time has passed. It's still daylight. Mm -hmm. It's not like he had to walk for 20 miles or something like that. So the span of time is short, and I really made it into a really much scarier thing. Hmm. So what does that say about me? I don't know. It's interesting that... It sounds obviously like a number of situations that you could remember from a dozen different films that you've plugged into that instead. But it is odd that you misremember something so wildly different from this particular story and have such a distinct memory and very detailed idea of what happened. So did I put my own fears could be. into what I had remembered? Because it could be. Because I certainly don't want to be put out of a car overnight and then... You come back and get me. It has that sort of, it's not sterile, but it is very logical and there's a real cruelty and finality to everything. So it could be that, yes, it's kind of open enough that you could imprint your own anxieties on it mm. and it could grow in your mind over the ensuing decades. Interesting. I don't have anything like that to compare to, at least with this movie. I I didn't remember it well, but I didn't have distinct... You didn't misremember. Right. Impressions that were vastly different from hmm. it. Now, speaking of those anxieties and fears, do you have anything like that? That Do you have any sort of these recurring dreams that talk about your claustrophobia and loneliness? Can you relate to any of that? I don't have any recurring dreams personally. No, it, not for a long time. There were probably a couple when I was a kid. And, you know, the same sort of general things that happen to people all the time. I'm naked in Times Square, or yeah. I've got a test tomorrow that I haven't studied yes, for. Yes, I or... have plenty of stress dreams, that's for sure, but never any sort of but I don't have... philosophical. Right, I have nothing like that. I did experience the feeling, though, that we get to in a little while, when she finally disappears for good. And this just happened to me with you. Oh. And I didn't tell you. Well, okay. I was going to say, gee, I can't remember. When we were on our way back from Paris, when we were in Atlanta in the airport, there was a stretch where it felt like you were gone a little bit longer than you should have been from me. And I started to have this very distinct, creepy feeling preparing myself in my mind for what happens if you have disappeared from the Atlanta airport, which seems crazy because it's an, one, it's an airport. So it seems much more difficult for a a villain to do some sort of thing like that in a place like that. So that made me feel a little bit better, but I had just a little tiny flash of it for maybe 10 seconds in the pit of my stomach. What if you don't come back right now? Okay. Uh, full disclosure. When I was a little kid, I don't know if all little kids do this. I suspect that they do that. Maybe I just wasn't the biggest jerk in the world, but I was a huge jerk in that I would in department stores hide in the clothing racks <laughs> So my mother couldn't find me <laughs> or I would go up the escalator really fast and be looking down on them and freak my mother out. Is did, was I the only one who ever did that? I don't think I, I'm sure you're not the only one. Oh my God. That's the worst. I mean, I'm sure it was hilarious. It was when you hilarious were to me. 
I think the worst thing I ever did was just wander off to the shoe department and read Little Lulu comics because that's where the soft chairs were. Right. Yeah. I deliberately hid <laughs> and had a great time doing it. So I guess... And not only hid, but took a bit, took a point up in a, yeah, so I a, could watch. a sniper position yeah. where you could watch the whole thing unfold yep. as if you were literally God. Yeah. And you were watching this thing play out that you set in motion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. We're recording this on Mother's Day. Whoops. That whole airport fear that you had, though, that gives me an idea. I think I'm going to do a new screenplay where the wife disappears in the airport. It's called Airport 70. It's about the ages of the people. What do you think? (laughs) Or Airport 75, based on the year I was born. I was going to say, if you're making this film and I am 75 years old, there's not a lot of relentless detecting that I am prepared to do in my golden years. Give yourself a little bit more credit. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. By that time, maybe... she's gone. Hey, we had a good good run. Maybe we'll have amassed enough of a fortune that I can just pay someone to do it instead. Gotcha. Anyway. Anyway. So he makes it back to the car, gets the car, finds her at the end of the tunnel, unlike what you remembered... And they proceed with their vacation. But we do have a sigh of relief because we do know something's happening, but they've gotten through that okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, one other thing that put me off of his character in that sequence before he actually goes to get the gas. When talking about the conditions that led up to them running out of gas, he is downplaying his contribution to the danger that he has put them in. Of driving right past the gas station and looking at it and not stopping. Taking no responsibility. And knowing Already that he's I don't in like an older guy. car that doesn't have the same kind of safety measures that Speaking newer cars do. Speaking of an do. older car, when is the last time you notice when they pull into the gas station, the gas tank under the license plate? A long time. Since I was a kid, really. Yeah. All those Renault and Citroën. Who knows where all those little gas caps are? <laughs> They make it safely, Mm -hmm. relatively, to this busy travel mart, this busy service station where all of the travelers are coming in and out constantly all day long. So what is French for buckies? (sighs) Bouquets? (laughs) It's essentially one of those. A Love's... Do you want to do the buckies voice? No, I do not. A Love's country store... uh, A pilot... Flying J. Flying J. Truck stop. Right. A large middle of the interstate sort of place where literally thousands of people pass through every day. This is the thing that was the last nail in his coffin for me character Really? That he doesn't like Frisbee? That didn't help. Or at least that he doesn't want to pay for a decent Frisbee. Yeah. By the way, she gets a crappy one. Yeah. Just FYI. Not quality. Not whammo. <laughs> but in the car, when they pull up at the station and they arrive and they're finally parked there to get gas, he turns to her and tells her that he was never more in love with her than when she was calling his name as he was leaving the tunnel. And that moment right there, that is textbook older guy manipulating slightly younger girlfriend. That guy is the worst. Mm. Do you feel that in this film that they do have that much of an age difference? Or is it more of the quality of that relationship? They're much younger so the age difference seems more significant. She's, what, I would guess 19, 20? She's very young. Yeah, she's in her early 20s, I would say. Not, no more than 23, probably 24. He's at least 5, 6, huh, maybe more. Okay, once again, something that I didn't read quite the same way. 
I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's very manipulative. Right. And he's also punching above his weight when you look at her and look at him. Mm -hmm. So he's doing whatever he can to keep this young, attractive girl that probably makes him feel awfully good about himself somewhat under control. Well, you've really got it in for Rex. Um, That's for sure. I don't think I'm inventing any of these things. When you go back and watch their faces and watch that interaction when they're on the grass, Mm -hmm. when she sits on top of him and is holding him down and they're play fighting. She makes him do the pledge. Right. There's this constant struggle of... There's a constant power dynamic struggle the whole time in little subtle symbolic ways... But the worst of it is when he says that to her when they arrive at the gas station. That was his trump card to me. And I felt it was at most 50% true and 50% him making sure that he put her where he wanted her. Very, very manipulative. Or casting him, himself as the, as the savior. Mm-hmm. As the only person who can save her from herself. It seems like she is cast in the light of she's supposed to be kind of a little finicky or flaky. Her her moods are a little bit more changeable. She's a little bit more up and down. Also, I didn't really read it that way. I was I was reading some other articles about it, and it seems like that that's what some people ascribe to her character. Hmm. And maybe, again, that's me putting my own anxiety as of I don't want people to see me as flaky. Therefore, I don't see her as flaky. I didn't see her that way. I chalk it up, if anything, to just relative use. use. It didn't seem to be a significant character flaw like I ascribed all these things to him. Gotcha. To me, it seemed more like she was being set up to be lovable and someone that had flaws, but someone that we could relate to and feel for and obviously would make a big impact when all of a sudden there was a void. She was much more a symbol of kind of a ruined innocence, it feels like, than any sort of flakiness or flightiness. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem at all that way to me. And I guess I also take all of those times that we've traveled, and you really do have to kind of let things roll off your back, too, quite a lot. Because things are going to get on your nerves, and tempers are going to flare, and then they're going to go down, and you're going to love each other again, and it's all kind of the cycle. It's a hard thing to remember, when you've run out of gas and you're really mad at each other. Or if you're like me and you go crazy when you get hungry or sleepy <laughs> or stinky. But you're so many of those things all the time. Hungry and sleepy and stinky. It's true. I will remember all of that the next time I decide to hide in a clothing ring <laughs> at the airport somewhere. So we have this interaction with them for the first 20 minutes when they're traveling that I can't quite put a finger on whether they're having fun or they're completely annoyed or some mixture of the two the whole time and then we see our villain for the first time I want to step back for one second though and draw attention to the pledge that he makes which is to never abandon her literally this is what he says Mm -hmm. she gets him to say this and they are doing this play fighting and she's going to go back in and get one last set of drinks before she is going to drive, which is made into kind of a big thing, which I can't really relate to that much. It's going to be her first time driving on the highway. Again, why I thought she was so much younger. True. Makes sense. But he does, to his credit, keep his pledge, ultimately. (laughs) (laughs) He does. And to bring us right back to what you had mentioned, this is the first time that we see Raymond, who is our kidnapper. 
doing his preparation, putting on his fake Ted Bundy-like cast in his car. Is it because we're Americans that that's the first thing that occurs when you see someone putting a fake cast on? Ted Bundy? Yeah. Um, Does it make as much sense if you're a European? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe if we have listeners out there outside of the United States who aren't voracious readers of Anne Rule true crime books the way I am, or my sister is, or whomever, they can tell us if you see someone putting on a fake cast in Austria, what are they up to? Now, I could have saved everyone a whole lot of trouble. Okay. Never, ever, never trust a man who has a beard and no mustache. End of story. They are never up to any good. Abraham Lincoln? Okay, one exception to that rule that is true at, at 99% Where of the you, time. You're poking me. I'm poking you. Because I, I wrote it down because I was so upset when I first saw him come on screen. I've ne- it's, that's always bothered me. Anyone who's known me since birth has heard me at one time or another say something about men with beards and no mustaches. Again, I think the Dutch contingent might feel differently about that. He's French, though. I have nothing. I have no response. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to put together a gallery and put on the website of super cool dudes who only have a beard and no mustache. Incorrect, because you won't find any. <laughs> what you'll find is a bunch of mugshots of people like that. <laughs> it's also the Bundy thing, maybe the time that it was made, 1988, I think. Kind of the height of that time where serial killers were first coming to occupy such a huge space in the American consciousness. But obviously it's not an exclusively American phenomenon if this Franco-Dutch production is taking elements of that and using it in that film. We meet Raymond and then immediately we go into these other scenes of his family life and we begin to get to know who he is. In flashback, as we start to see the logical, experimental nature of his personality. The process that he takes on in order to plan out an abduction. He doesn't have the person yet, but he's thinking about the act. I remember thinking distinctly the first time I saw it, is this the first time he's ever done this? That's answered in the film later, obviously. This time, it wasn't a question I had, but I do remember distinctly one of the things from the first time I watched it thinking about how many times has he done this before? Is he refining his process? Which it turns out he is, but not by committing crime after crime after crime. He's doing it in little thought experiment ways, maybe, and or just running a stopwatch, checking his pulse, doing that sort of thing. Not abducting person after person and improving his skill set that way. And because of the nature of time in the film, we're not grounded in, you know, a specific day. So we don't know, is he looking back four years ago in May or last week or, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, there, so, so it is a question. We do see him tried on a bit with a hitchhiker who ends up, the girl has a man with her who is behind the bushes, kind of that old dodge of some guy will pick up a girl, but they won't pick up a couple. Right. So, and he says, I'm not a con artist, you are, so you screw you basically and he keeps going but he's looking for these opportunities to find this person and all throughout this process he has this old house that he's restoring with his family so he has this golden opportunity of this place in the woods that he establishes sort of with a neighbor caretaker no one can hear screams 
from around the area so he's got carte blanche to do whatever he likes with whomever his victim is going to be. And unfortunately, Saskia is the one that catches his attention. And throughout this process, his family is becoming concerned because he's putting so many more miles on the car. So they're questioning individually, does he have a mistress? That's a thing that I noticed more distinctly this time than the first time I watched it. How bad a criminal he is. He has left so many loose ends, so much evidence. He tries to pick up a woman who turns out to be one of his children's former teachers that recognizes him. He's doing things so much so that both wife and at least one daughter question him about potential infidelity. He is not doing a great job at hiding this. He attempts to abduct a woman by getting her to help hitch his trailer to his car and she sends her husband over. So there are at least half a dozen people that have noticed something weird is going on and have seen this guy with the distinctive beard and no mustache that could describe him to authorities. He is not doing a fantastic job in his experimental phase at staying off people's radar. But he cuts such a staid figure True. He's such a family man that people know he lives in, he doesn't live in a huge town. He lives in a relatively smaller town, which where he's been for his whole life. He's a teacher there, we discover later. All of these people know him. And there's even a joke later on with one of his friends where he says, that kidnapper could have been me and you just laughed at me. No one could possibly believe anything worse than you have a mistress. Mm -hmm. And as does the woman who is his child's former teacher, that's what she assumes. Mm -hmm. She assumes he's trying to pick up a woman for sex. What do you think the wife in this instance would think would be the bigger betrayal? That he's killed two people? Or if he indeed had had a mistress this whole time? When those things unfold, how often is it that the wife either says they had no idea when they probably had some inkling, or they stick by the guy? I think about all those episodes of who the bleep did I marry that I've watched from the <laughs> ID channel, and I can't answer that. It, though he does make a specific distinction saying when his wife asks him straight out, is there another person? And he says, I can you know, happily be the only man in France who can claim to have only known one woman in his life. That he is surprised and upset that they would think that of him, but of the greater evil to our mind, that's, that's not a question. Because his pathology is all about purity and the holy event that he underwent as a child when he realized, I can do the thing that is not predestined. His thought process with this whole thing seems to occupy a sort of exalted space rather than a banality of evil space. To him, it is much more about the purity of the achievement. You can only know that worship from your daughters in this specific instance that he feels when he saved a little girl. You can only know that and have earned that true worship if you have done the ultimate evil. And yet he approaches it not from venality but from and, or, and not from the space of being a criminal mastermind but from logic and, and experimentation mm -hmm. well we're at the sequence at this point chronologically in the film where the actual abduction takes place it stuck out to me as being edited so oddly it feels really disjointed probably to underline the confusion that 
Rex feels. That's how I took it. And we have to point out, again, he's in a foreign country. Though he has an excellent grasp of the language, it's not perfect. And imagine how terrifying that would be to try to communicate and locate a person when you can't fully describe them or can't always make yourself understood. And he's trying to think about fingerprints on coins, and it's, you know, not the most advanced forensics period either. No, but at that point you are so confused and afraid and in such foreign territory that everything becomes a clue. The smashed cans in the parking lot, every little thing might be the thing that the person left behind that will unravel this mystery. And he's poring over this Polaroid that he took just in passing where he thinks he sees her head and he thinks he sees, if that's her head, another dot next to her. So, so someone took her. She didn't walk away, which is what people would question Mm -hmm. that they just had an argument and she left yeah he is trying to turn this completely indecipherable smudge on a polaroid into exhibit a that proves that she was taken it's an odd intersection this sequence of the two most terrifying parts of the story wrong place wrong time all the things that had to happen that put you in this person's path that make you his target And all the circumstances that have had to line up over the course of literally years to put you and him in the same place when he is ready to do this thing. I think we talk about this kind of regularly, you and I, this whole idea of wrong place, wrong time, because there are people in the world, and I'm sure I've been one of them, who are terrified of, I'm going to get hurt, I'm going to get taken, I'm going to get raped, I'm going to get murdered, whatever. And it's so much more terrifying to think, You really have no control over this. It's not as though you're walking into a place with a weapon or you're walking up to someone with a weapon. It's the people that you don't know that you simply opened this door and got into this place and it was you were that wrong little ball in the pinball machine getting batted around. In this case, in an extremely public place where you would feel incredibly safe. This happened when there were literally dozens of people around in broad daylight. And most of the film takes place in broad daylight, which is always a scary thing to me, too. So you've got the wrong place, wrong time element of her terror, and then Rex's part of it, the unthinkable to most of us notion that this person has disappeared from your life and there is nothing you can do about it. You couldn't protect them, much like you mentioned about him being her savior, positioning himself to do that. Proves totally ineffectual at that. Can't protect, can't prevent, can't retrieve any of this stuff because there are forces out there at work that are bigger than you, that are more determined to do evil than you. There's not a thing you can do about it. And you, as the secondary victim, have to sit with that, which might be even worse, a literal fate worse than death. It could have been that the movie ends right there say you make a 30 minute short film is it worse if the movie stops at that point and you as an audience member don't know anything else that happens except fade out on him standing in that patch of grass beside beside the gas station looking around not knowing what's next again hearkening back to all these shows i'm talking about you watch all of this cold case files and that's why families struggle for decades and and are destroyed by the loss of a loved one That's why they have ceremonies with headstones with no bodies, it seems like. Some people have to have a place 
to put that grief. Otherwise, it's just maddening. And I think back to a few years ago, this is not the same thing, but when I was in a, a small accident and I was having the ambulance call you to try to get you to me because I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And so you get a call and you don't know what's happened to me. Mm. Yeah, those are pretty fun days. Just saw it was me. a great day at work. <laughs> yeah, I literally just left you thirty minutes or so before, maybe. And you don't know what you're walking into. You don't know what kind of shape I'm going to be in. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, we just had are to you yank okay? your teeth forward and you, <laughs> and put you in a cast for a few weeks, and everything yeah. was fine. Yes, but it's it's terrifying. It was terrifying for me to try to explain how to get in touch with you, and not knowing if I would see your face when I really needed to. Mm -hmm. And of course, these are just the small scale, banal things again, referring back to banality. And this is the ultimate. And then in a moment, we jump ahead three years and we realize that Saskia is still gone. We don't know what's happened to her because we see a poster going up saying, this girl disappeared three years ago. Have you seen her? Just as Raymond, our kidnapper, is walking by and he comments on essentially the obsession that Rex has had to keep looking for Saskia. Now, this brings me to something I heard about a few years ago. I was listening to NPR. I think it was a This American Life episode, possibly. And a woman was talking about some 20 or 30 years before her mother had been murdered, and it was never solved. And there were certain clues, as it were, or certain suspects, but nothing could ever come together. And so she had actually made a conscious decision years after that point. She was a young person when it happened. She was speaking as an adult now to say that she actually decided to stop looking for her mother's murderer. She just couldn't do it anymore. Number one, she didn't have the resources. She didn't have the wherewithal to be able to do it. And there were no essential, you know, smoking guns to be able to do it. And she wasn't a criminologist. Mm -hmm. And she had to make that decision for her own sanity. And in this film, we're three years in. Mm -hmm. How do you compare three years with, say, three decades, you know? And that made me think, would you have a point where you would have to stop? I'm, you, I'm meaning you, me, Cole. No, there's no... I'm, because I made a similar note here mm. when we were watching last night asking, when would you stop looking? And in this case, if something happened to you, I would never stop looking. I can't imagine ever giving up. It's unthinkable. It's it's impossible to consider that if you just disappeared off the face of the earth and I had no idea what happened, that I would ever stop looking. The rest of my life would be over. There's nothing else to do. So I understand his obsession. I don't understand what propels him because to me it didn't feel like that's where their relationship was. Again, a lot more about him as we get into this. Because of one telling thing. It's only three years later, and he's been in a relationship with another woman for, it turns out to be eight months already. Mm -hmm. So two years and four months after this happened, he begins seeing someone else. It doesn't compute. Slizer makes an interesting point in an interview when he's talking about how... This is George Slizer, the director and co-writer. Right. How the, there was a, a gap in their relationship that left room for someone to infiltrate and exploit that gap, which then allowed this terrible thing to happen. So do you think he's propelled by guilt more than other 
purer motives, possibly. Guilt more than love, because he says to the new girl at the table, when they're at the cafe, when they've been lured there by the killer, that if Saskia was here, I would leave with you right now. Implying that the only thing he needs to know is that she's all right and that she's alive. Or the what actually choice, happened. Right. Yeah. An answer. But his ultimate choice would be not knowing how things worked out to just go back to the gas station three years ago. Yeah. But there are little things that he says and does over the course of this three-year span that let me know, at least, that it's not the purest motive for him. He is not bound to her eternally in any sort of romantic way. I think you're right. I think it's much more about guilt and his desire to just know that whole lure of the unknown is what gets him in the end anyway. So I think it's much more about satisfying his own curiosities and assuaging his own guilt than it is any connection that he feels to her. You know, talking about that story, about the the story that I listened to about the woman making the decision to stop, I, I do, I get it. That if you let it, you can live in grief your whole life. I mean, ask... Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. You can live in that place and be driven mad and essentially, or live in madness and function every day, but that's what you live with every day. And making a decision to to move on, I guess, is the most banal term I can come up with. So I'm not saying that I won't take a blood oath to hunt down your murderers here's, and exact revenge. But if it goes on five, six years, I don't Here's know. the difference. Here's why that's okay, and here's why that works in particular for us. Because I know that even 30 years down the road, if you're out there somewhere, you are thinking, why has he not come to find me yet? Someone please come find me. Please help me. And if I am out there in mortal peril for five, six years, you know that I'm thinking, just go on about your business. I guess so. Don't do this. I kind but, of feel like a jerk. I think this I think this <laughs> podcast is really exposed what a big jerk I am. <laughs> to everyone who's ever loved me. I wouldn't quite go that far. I absolve you of any responsibility. Okay. So. I mean, I have a huge amount of bloodlust. I want to <laughs> see people suffer, that's, for sure. If they, if they have earned it. Sure. But I, I do get it. There, we, we talked about this a bit when we watched The Duke, for instance, about feeding your grief. Mm-hmm. And I think I see him doing some of that. There is a line I will draw that we'll get to as we discuss the end of the film in a little while, though. We will come back to this idea, so don't let me forget. Okay. I've already forgotten it. Okay. Make sure you write it down. <laughs> okay. I've got it. Again, we are three years in the future. He is continuing to put these posters up. It catches the eye of Raymond. And then we learn, because Rex comes back into the picture with this new girlfriend that he has, that he has been drawn specifically to a a cafe to meet with the killer. And this is the fifth time Mm -hmm. the killer, I'll, I'll call him the killer now, the fifth time the killer has reached out to him to say, come meet me at such and such place and time and I will tell you what happened. And he's never shown up before. And so this is the fifth time of doing it. He's shown up, but he's never made contact. He's never made contact. Thank you. Again, manipulation. It's just Raymond feeding his own ego, I think, at that point. There's that whole thing with serial killers or that often comes up when you read these stories of the ones at least who have been captured. 
And this applies to a lot of criminals. Arsonists, actually. I think, who you you always read about showing up at the scene of the crime. Not often. so much showing up at the scene of the crime, but they want someone to appreciate the genius of what they've done. They cannot just keep it to themselves. Mm -hmm. So they want to tell at least one person. So someone out there, someone other than them, knows what an immaculate plan they put together and executed, which is almost always their undoing. And Ramel has kept notes and journals and all of this sort of stuff and has implied it to friends and family members who don't take the bait. Things that people couldn't decipher, though, I don't think, because what you see in his journals are just notations of time and heart rate and mm -hmm. things like that. And you would have no idea that there's any correlation to a crime. Definitely, because we find out that he is a science teacher, I'm assuming chemistry. Mm -hmm. And so it could all be related to any sort of exactly. work. But there are all of these little things and no one is prepared to go in their mind beyond the point of, oh, he's racking up all of this mileage and spending all of this time at this secluded country house because he may have a mistress, not because he's murdering ladies. So as a last ditch effort in this new campaign, Rex goes on television to make a final appeal. Well, to make another appeal. We don't know at that point that that will be the final appeal. And he says to the killer, speaking to the killer, I don't blame you. I just want to know what happened. And that's when we have this sort of the bigger question of, I think, the second part of the film, even though it's the bulk of the film, which is how far are you willing to go? Mm -hmm. This is also the point at which the new girlfriend finally gives up and realizes that the ghost of Saskia is never going to go away. She's been as patient as can be, but there's no resolving this. I, I don't know. At the same time, I think even though he's starting to move on a bit or moved on in, in one sense within a two, three year period, she's putting him in a pretty untenable position because, I mean, the killer is continually reaching out to him. Every few months he's getting some postcard saying, I'm going to tell you what happened. You know, so what is what exactly is he supposed to do? I don't. In that know. sequence, though, he also reveals that he is constantly getting false leads. So how is she, as an outside observer, to know that these five postcards that this same person has sent over the course of three years are any different from the letter that says she's a prostitute somewhere else? Right. She lives... Or some psychic saying, oh, you're going to see her in a few days or whatever. There's no way for her to know that those five letters are any more significant than the pile of mail he gets literally every day, probably. I don't know. If you go into it and you're going to hit your star to a guy who's, whose girlfriend disappeared famously, <laughs> what sort of, where, where do you think this is going to go? That's true. That's true. This is also the point, though, that I completely realized who Rex is, what kind of guy he is, what sort of strata he occupies. He is... That guy that women just end up with. He is not someone's first choice. He is not the person that you see and you think, I'm going to fall in love with that person and be with them for the rest of my life. He is the person that is not a last resort exactly, but a relationship that you just eventually find yourself in. It's a very specific idea in my head. It's there's nothing remarkable about him, but in an almost insidious way to me. If this thing had not happened, if this abduction had not taken place, this abduction that defines him, that actually 
sustains him and makes him gives shape and purpose to his life really if that had not happened he would be normal guy bring me a beer from the fridge etc etc and so on this whole there's there's a very specific archetype of guy that i do not like (laughs) you're right have i said that have i mentioned that that somehow that somehow typically being manipulation ends up with a woman that deserves more than him I'm now feeling like I'm in a little bit of an Oprah episode because I was in one of those relationships when I was very young and he was a bit older mm-hmm. as well. And, it, and he was that guy. And I don't know why I'm so resistant to see Rex in that light. I guess I think of him as more of a nothing than mm-hmm. a something in that negative way. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I haven't fully embraced seeing him that way, gotcha. I guess. Well, I may... think a lot of people can relate to that. And it, I think it often comes down to, if this is a male-female relationship, the female partner being, again, the younger and self-esteem maybe not being so solidified that hmm. to realize what you've settled down to. Mm-hmm. It may be exaggerated in my head. I don't know. But from the beginning of He's this He's history's viewing... greatest monster. <laughs> no. Not quite. But from the beginning of this viewing, at least, he is extremely unappealing. And all of those characteristics coalesce into this person that is one of those guys. Mm. And you've already got that kind of person. You pile obsessiveness to to the point of madness on top of it. And you got yourself a real prize. <laughs> okay. At this point, I believe he he's still with this girl this is before they actually break up and there's a really interesting scene where she says let's go to Boisvue let's go to this place that you were going to let's see her house he's never been there he says she's tired of his sacred sacred cows yeah or sacred places and so they go and he has that dream of seeing Saskia driving past him in the car and catching up to her and seeing her again and he's almost kind of in a catatonic state at Mm -hmm. that point when his girlfriend catches up with him but it's of course not to be so the appeal he makes on tv actually works it gets through to raymond who decides he's going to contact him in person and we move into the finale of the film yes after he has sent him this postcard and he's been there in the cafe and he's observed him but rex didn't know he was there and so this is a short time after that and he decides finally I'm going to show myself. Right. And so he makes this offer. Come with me to France and you will know everything about what happened. So it's Rex's opportunity to finally learn the truth. And he knows now that she's dead. Does he know for sure that she's dead or does he just strongly suspect? Because the wording is always so careful to be, come with me and you will know what she experienced. Because Rex asks Raymond, is she dead? And he doesn't say yes or no. That's true. That's very true. The promise is only you will experience the exact same thing she did, which could be slim chance. I know, but we went to the circus and then she hopped on a plane to parts unknown. Go have a great life. So maybe he's got two tickets to Ringling Brothers and a plane ticket to. Which to me is a terrible, terrible fate. So I get it. (laughs) Okay. Ice capades, maybe. Is that better? That's it is better than the circus. Yeah. Okay. Now State this, fair, ride the sizzler. Uh, no, you know me. Elephant ears. I don't know. Oh, no. Fried Dr Pepper. Oh. 
It just gets worse and worse. Okay. So so instead you would rather be stuffed in a box, buried alive. Uh, Hold on a second. (laughs) Quit rushing the ending. Because this finale, it takes a while because there's still a lot of ground to recover. And we see more of those blanks get filled in as to how Raymond then finesse this process and the false start that leads directly to Saskia. Mm -hmm. Again, just more of that fickle finger of fate causing all of these things to line up the way they did. The fact that he failed at a number of attempts. The fact that he sneezed in one case. And that was the thing that sent him back inside the store to be there when coincidentally Saskia came back into the store for a second time rather than Rather than them just moving down the road. Yes, and Saskia actually approaches him. Mm-hmm. That's what is kind of heartbreaking as well. You know, she in her good-natured French is asking for change and asking for to buy this key ring that she sees that he right. has. Even that thing. Even if he had not had his keys in his hand, if his keys had been in his pocket, this might not have happened. Because she wouldn't have noticed that to inquire about them, which then gave him the germ of the idea Oh, I sell these. Come to my car with me. And get in. And we see her eyes, and then we see her eyes again when he is putting the ether chloroform on her face in her terror. And screams, and it's all for naught because she's gone at that point. Now, I know you have a question. The beginning of this part when he is talking about, I'll show you everything, but you have to do this one thing. Mm-hmm. You have to drink this coffee. It's got this sleeping pill in it. Right. I drugged her, so I'm going to drug you. This is where I think our answer is the same. Whereas I would go on looking and looking and looking for you, and you would, after a couple of weeks, just Shrug my shoulders. (laughs) Well, gave it the old college try. (laughs) I think both of us in this case would not drink that. Uh, Most definitely. I I really thought you were about to say, yes, I would drink the coffee. Fuck no. (laughs) I absolutely would not, because... Again, all the true crime I know about. 48 hours after this has gone down, that window is closed. That person is most likely dead. The offer you are essentially making to me is, if you want to know, I'll kill you the same way I killed her. And if you don't understand that, if you are so insane in your grief and desire to know specifics, I've already got a good enough idea at this point after this car ride what has happened. I know generally enough that I do not have to know every specific detail from this point on. So, nope, not drinking it. Don't care. Going to call the police right now, and we're going to work this out. And maybe after you are imprisoned and go through an entire trial, then I'll learn the rest of it. Definitely. But I am not drinking what's in that thermos. Number one, don't get in the car. Number two, don't drink what somebody offers you. Number three, never trust a man with a beard and no mustache. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Solved it, folks. But he drinks it. He does. And And he ends up at the circus. Nope. (laughs) Nope. No, he ends up buried alive, which is one of the most unnerving endings in modern cinema, I I, would say, when I experienced it the first time. I cannot think of another for the moment. Yeah. Or even now? I suspected in my guts it was coming, but not that specific thing. Definitely not that specific thing. I thought it may even be far worse, you know, growing up on the extreme gore and horror that I've watched for years upon years upon years. I thought it might be at least the representation of it 
would be a lot more extreme. But the isolation and despair of being buried alive and knowing that that is also what happened to her. Suffocating alone oh. over a period of hours. I Yeah, I can't it's, think it's of terrifying. A, a worse ending. It's terrifying. Worse in terms of the disposition of your life, not worse in terms of the execution in the film. Definitely, because it is incredibly deft. And I was reading something about Hitchcock prizing suspense over surprise, and this movie has both of those things. Mm -hmm extreme suspense and terrible surprise <laughs> yes truly terrible and we just see raymond scooping the dirt over over the coffin yes it's extremely understated it's just very it's just a moment cruel logical mm -hmm. final it's done mm -hmm. it, w it was that easy in essence really and he returns to his life as the loving family man and with two corpses in the lawn that no one else suspects. And he's just looking over his work. And are you thinking, as the viewer, it's just the start? Or how in, how long to the next one? Or this was it? No, in this case, I think that's it. I think, as he has explained his own pathology, the bookending of the holy act, and then him being a hero, and then proving to himself that he is capable of each end of the spectrum, to me, it is a completed experiment. He created that justification in the first place, so I'm just waiting for him to create a, another justification for something else. Could be. In this case, it feels to me like that's, that's that. That's it. The rare case where, I guess now in this case, serial killer, since there are two, stops without having to be killed or caught. There are a couple of other things I wanted to note that we've touched upon briefly before we essentially wrap up. And one is the score, which I think is mm. great. And mm -hmm. it never overplays its hand and it never overstays its welcome. And I'm thinking of that specific moment when Rex is so angry that he hasn't gotten that meeting that this fifth postcard promised him. And he's careens into the town square and the music is really interesting. And then it stops abruptly as if it's sort of cut off. And I thought that was really fun. And we learned that the composer was in one of the most popular Dutch ska bands ever. The most popular. The most popular. Probably. Maybe not a ton of them, I'm guessing. That's probably true. The uh, fourth wave of Dutch ska <laughs> probably didn't generate <laughs> nearly as many Anyway, hugely hits. popular. Mm. Hugely popular. And I really enjoyed the score quite a bit. The one thing I wanted to go back to, since you specifically mentioned how deftly the ending was handled in this case is how the ending was handled in the 1993 remake of this. Same director. Same director. Same director. Can we just say that again? <laughs> he remade his film. Went to Hollywood uh. to do it, though, and knuckled under to happy ending. Knuckled under to Americans are not going to sit and watch something that goes down this way. Do you think that's what happened? I guarantee that's okay. what happened. Why else would you I do don't that? Know. Why I, would you I've... change the source material? Why, after you made such a brilliant film just five years before? I have this idea that maybe he had this kind of madness takeover that he thought I could do it even better somehow. And hmm. it, I don't know. I want to give him a better motive than... Could be. I've never actually heard him talk about yeah, no idea. why he did it differently. But it certainly feels like, just like it does for any number of things, you get an American remake that has to be... Dumbed down, simplified, loses whatever crucial elements that made it so interesting in the first place. The one exception to this rule I can think of 
when Michael Haneke did Funny Games again, stuck to it. Obviously, didn't sell it out, didn't change yeah. it. Yeah. But unnecessarily made it again. I don't think it was necessary to make it again, except for the fact that American audiences, and this just drives me insane, don't want to read subtitles. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I think of the wonderful John Waters saying, why don't we remake terrible films? <laughs> why do you remake great films? It's it's awful. But it, it drives me crazy. It's so much more terrible that he is the one who did this remake and went that direction. And even just listening to bits of the trailer for that or clips from it, and Jeff Bridges affected sort of a accent and then you go back and look at Bernard Pierre Donadieu's performance where he is the most subtle and interesting mm -hmm. and not interesting and so fantastic to watch and he doesn't have he doesn't raise his voice he doesn't have to engage in any sort of a trick mm -hmm. and also Slizer adjusted the ending of the novel I believe I have not read it but in reading about the film he developed the relationship between Rex and Raymond which is really fascinating so he expanded on something and I think made something tremendous and then to just completely undercut ugh. so how did you discover this the first time what was it that made you make this choice for the show now without getting into too many details but I'll just go ahead and do it anyway my first love when I was 16 he recommended this to me and so he was into art house stuff which was really cool and so was I and he told me about this. Now, this was probably, I guess this actually would have been around the time of the remake, slightly before that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see the remake, had no intention of seeing the remake. He told me about this, but I don't know if anyone in your life has ever done this or this is just my life where the question is, do you think you're going to see this? And maybe I said, eh, I'm not sure when I'll get around to it. And so he told me the ending. <laughs> So, have you had an experience where you knew how something was going to end? Did it affect the way you watched it? And I, and I will tell you, it did not affect the way I watched this. It was actually more sort of terribly inevitable that I was kind of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And the nature of the film is that the director or the writer gives you everything that you need mm -hmm. as you're going. It's not so much it's a, not a who done it. Right. It's a why they do it. How yes, they do it. Yes. And it takes its time. So this whole, you know, finale section is 20, 30 minutes long mm. of the two of them together and going through this process or, or a bit before that. So it, it takes its time and you know that it's coming. And I knew this finality and I was still completely engaged in it. But I don't have a problem with didn't, that. I fall directly into films usually. It didn't diminish the It didn't power diminish the... it. No. And it didn't diminish it the second time I watched it. Mm -hmm. I can't recall. I'm sure someone has done that for me before. To me before. Told me the ending. Much like we've done for everyone who's listened yeah. today. That hasn't seen it already. I, You guys gotta know by now. We're going to talk about these movies in great detail. Yes. So... Don't ever be surprised when we tell you all the surprises. And it's almost a 30-year-old movie at this point, right. too. And I'm sure someone has done it to me, but I, much like you, if it's well done and if the story is good, I'm fully invested in it anyway. I don't have to be completely ignorant of all the twists and turns to enjoy how we get there. Mm -hmm. The journey is much as the destination kind of thing. And I think the difference in watching it the second time, the first time... 
I did know what was coming. And so everything I'm looking at mm-hmm. is making me think, oh, how are we going to get to that? With What is this moment? How is this moment going to connect us to there? And just sort of on the edge of my seat, just God, just when is it going to happen? And then this time I was able to spend more time and pay more attention and watch all of those things happening and think about the score and think about how amazing the direction is. In those little moments, this this moment in particular, I loved when we have the shot of the family picture of Raymond that's in the little kind of wheel well of the car that he's driving or the little glove compartment section, whatever the, that's the, called. The dashboard. Whatever it is. In the, in the dashboard. It's gone, it's gone from the wheel well, which Sorry. is outside the car. Okay. To that's the glove right. compartment. <laughs> Are you sure it wasn't in the cockpit? Maybe. Tire, tire iron? Maybe. I'm just saying words now. Maybe it was in the moonroof. Maybe. Is that a thing? Is that the same, same thing as the sunroof? Yeah, it's just quieter. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, the you photo the of him and his family and on the dashboard. On the dashboard, and it's underneath a little bottle of ether and his glasses. Love that. I love seeing that moment and then seeing Saskia see the picture. And her too. respond to it's it. Wonderful. Thinking, oh, I have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. But she's taken, and Raymond tells Rex, you know, I essentially saved you because I took her before you had the chance to for you to fall out of love. Mm. A noble gesture. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Asshole. As Rex says, I do really like that. Oh, very good English. <laughs> he, he has grasp of, he has a great grasp of very specific English. So, since we're at the end, what is the one movie you want to recommend say that you were going to be put in an oblong box four feet down and you could only take one movie with you my insides just closed up (laughs) what's your recommendation this time well you know i was gonna do a little bit of a cheat before you don't say yeah but i'm not gonna do it but i do want to mention the film okay so that hopefully first off that we can find it why did you want to cheat what's so great that you want to cheat when i was reading about it and following the links to the actors and looking through all these other things i found a movie that a lot of people reference which is beatrice from 1987 with julie delpy and bernard pierre donadieu right a real powerhouse performance from him yes so i really want to check that out so hopefully listeners can find it and hopefully we can find it i guarantee i can get one yes so that was going to be my cheat to say let's recommend a movie neither of us has seen because it sounds like it's going to be a a really exciting thing okay so you're doing sort of one and a half recommendations so here's my official recommendation i've seen it you have not so i can't wait for you to check this out and this recommendation is and soon the darkness from 1970 yeah, I'm dying Unfortunately to see that. remade, but we won't talk about that. Okay, we'll talk about the original. And so this version, directed by Robert Fuest with Pamela Franklin, who I know is one of your favorites. Mm-hmm. And it's the story of two English friends cycling through the French countryside again. And one goes missing. And who Pamela Franklin is not the one who goes missing. Who can she trust? How can she figure out what's happened? There's a language barrier as well. Mm-hmm. They're kind of in the middle of nowhere. Everyone seems uh, really creepy and nefarious. I might. And the darkness is coming. I might watch that today. That's such a great recommendation. That I'm going to take you up on it. Okay. And watch it today. My recommendation is expanding on the theme of searching for a missing loved one and finding yourself in imminent peril. And I'm going to recommend 
Deborah Granick's Winner's Bone from 2010. I read the book, loved the book, still haven't seen the movie. The movie's fantastic. I loved the book so much, I didn't actually want to see the movie. You will be persuaded by John Hawks. I can see that happening. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence's breakthrough performances as a young girl whose father goes missing, and to save the homestead in the Ozarks, she has to track him down. And to do that, she has to navigate a very specific, dark and dangerous, meth-addled underworld to try to get to the answer as to what happened to her father. Fantastic film. Bleak as all hell. And John Hawks, I love John Hawks so much in everything. Yes, definitely in everything. But this in particular is one of my favorite performances of his. And I think it is the one thing, even if you don't like any of the rest of it, when you watch him as her uncle teardrop, and when he asks that that sheriff, looking in his rearview mirror, not even looking him in the face, and just asking, is this our time? Is this when we do this? And your blood just goes totally cold. Can you see what's happening to my goosebumps? It is so good. Yeah, Winter's Bone, 2010, Deborah Granick, fantastic film. And for a film podcast, I'm going to recommend the book, too. <laughs> okay. It's it's truly excellent. Have you read it? Mm-hmm. Truly excellent. So two wonderful recommendations, And Soon the Darkness from 1970 and Winter's Bone from... 2010. 2010. And that brings us to the end of episode 20. Can you believe we've done 20 episodes? I can't. That's pretty cool. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page if you'd like to search for Magic Lantern Podcast on there. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. We got a lot of great feedback from a lot of people about the Blue Collar episode and even episodes prior to that in the last couple of weeks. So we want to say thanks for sharing links to the show and getting in touch with us, telling us what you like, spurring a lot of great conversation. Grindhouse Dave and Jeff Duncanson, as always. Mateo Boscarol. Mark Herney and Aaron West from Criterion Close-Up, Judy Brooks, Brian Sauer, Craig Eastman and the guys at Fuds on Film, and we had an interesting note from Jane from Some Like It Noir about how much she loved the idea of going back to watch Groundhog Day with no sound on. Yay! Cool! um, So we thank everybody. I hope I didn't overhype it Um, when those folks try that, because I really liked it. I really liked doing that. So thanks to everybody for getting in touch with us and sharing the show. We really appreciate it. We don't do any advertising, so everything is word of mouth for people finding out about us. So if you know people who you think might like the show or are really into cinema in general, feel free to tell them about us. We are on Google Play Podcast now if you're an Android user. Also on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. If you could subscribe to us on iTunes or leave us a rating or review, we certainly appreciate it whenever you take time to do that. And you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Podcast.